da 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 Lauren Silver in the house. <laughs> That's me. Helen Foster's in the house. I'm here too. Where up, 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 up. Where else can we go? We're not allowed to go out the house. We've got to stay in the house. We're staying in the house. Everyone's in the house. Hey, you can buy our single. <laughs> Lockdown in the house. Yeah, smash hit of the clubbing season that never happened. Clubbing. Is there a clubbing season? I, I do believe that's what they call it. They call it the clubbing season. <laughs> Are you excited to go clubbing again, Helen? <sighs> I don't know if I'm going to go clubbing again. I do miss dancing. Yeah. I think I'm. A, I think I'm done with you your know, clubbing days. Are over. I did a lot of clubbing. I really took my fill. I drank deep from the cup. Did you? Would you say so? And party. Yes, I did. But I, but like now I am a bit in between because I still like to dance even without a room full of people smushing themselves very close to me in a COVID sweaty environment. I'm not sure about. I still want to go to festivals. I still want to dance. I think I, I, I can't see myself clubbing that much these days. I think I'm entering a different phase of life. Yeah, because what do you think is the like the clubbing culture? Like, what do you think people enjoy? I feel like I'm an alien and I'm like, tell me what people enjoy about clubbing. What is it that is an enjoyable experience? Because I get the dancing part. The dancing part, you don't need to tell me twice. Like if it was just about going out and dancing and that was it, I'm sold. I'm on board. I bloody love it. It's definitely, dancing is a huge component. Hanging out with a group of friends and going and kind of letting loose, uh, imbibing of some booze or substances Mm -hmm. to uh, open yourself to a a carefree, it's not necessarily even about carefree, is it? It's like, it's like a feat of like the freedom of your body and mind. Because when I was growing up, actually, I was a bit enamored with the idea of the 90s club culture, which is when club culture really became I think 90s house music is it house music yeah dance music and like films like Human Traffic right which is a bloody brilliant film never seen it oh it's so good I'm an alien from outer space tell me what's (laughs) it about Human Traffic is about a group of friends in Cardiff in the 90s and it takes place over the course of a weekend where they take a lot of pills go dancing try and handle having Sunday dinner with their families on a massive come down and basically it's about their relationships and it's about how those relationships are kind of it's about connectivity I think it's about people connecting really deeply with one another which I think is you know also mm. the pull towards drugs like ecstasy mm. <laughs> yeah it's like people just looking for connection people looking for release people looking for a sense of freedom and fun that was like what I imagined clubbing to be when I was a child mm. you know like uh, people go clubbing and so like when I was a teenager and my friends were like let's go clubbing I didn't really know what to expect I was like oh my god like here we go start the lasers hands in the air it's not really like that by that time uh it was more like go to a, a dark sticky underground room and sweat and dance and roll around on the floor and <laughs> shout at a bouncer and go home. <laughs> That's what you miss. When I was younger, I like told myself in no uncertain terms that I was that I was going to do this forever, that I was always going to dance, I was always going to party, that I was always going to go to festivals, that I was always going to go to clubs, and that I wasn't going to fall into the trap of becoming a quieter person as I <laughs> grew older. So I started to really battle with that when I started to feel a bit more 
quiet, you know, like, or a bit more chill. I was like, oh, no, this is it. It's begun. I have begun to reject who I truly am Mm. in order to conform to the next part of who I'm supposed to be in society. But I don't think it's that at all. It's like, I just do other things. There's only so much you can drink. you know before you start to feel a bit sick well you know like because you had that there was that morning glory thing that happened for a while that was trying to encapsulate like the joy of clubbing but it was like six o'clock in the morning sober it was like sober sober rave and I went to that a few times yeah sober rave an early morning sober rave and it was really interesting because you know you get up stupidly early travel into central London or into Shoreditch or whatever to arrive at a rave at six o'clock in the morning it was brilliant you know what I mean like you have big loud pumping music loads of dancing and then you've got like people doing yoga in the in like one half and like people like just moving around like crazy and stretching and I was going to that it's freedom it's like the sense of it's like freedom and connection and fun and I think like all those things have a place then we need to find what that is, not necessarily imagine that it's only for the young, even if you want to change the way that you do it. If you've done of the days of going and getting groped by sweaty men in clubs, which I am, how can we find that sense of freedom, joy and movement? Oh, I'm not an expert necessarily from anybody else's perspective. Oh, well, we, objective got, perspective. we got you on this episode to talk about your expertise. of <laughs> The history of clubbing <laughs> with Helen Foster. I think the world of that scares me when it comes to things like people being drunk not really anything else I think it's mainly alcohol is the thing that makes me more nervous than anything else because people don't know they just abuse it or it makes them out of control and I think that like something like a sober rave is such a lovely thing because you get what the world is and you just you're there for the dancing and the closeness without the feeling like you need alcohol to do anything I think you know we're definitely becoming more into a culture where drinking in that way to get yourself so fucked isn't necessarily a thing anymore and more and more people are coming out now and talking about how they are sober the only um you were with me for one of the times where i'm not a massive drinker but we went to a party and i drank loads of gin <laughs> yeah i remember this time because i was really nervous and gin in particularly gin makes me think i'm fucking brilliant when I'm really not like in that moment not being really into oh I'm probably being super obnoxious and really annoying but in a sort of quiet way where I drank a lot and then I remember like memories that I have from this party was like I was wearing a hoodie and I put this hood up and I was like walking down the stairs in this party with my hood up like thinking I was invisible so I was like pressed up against the wall with my back to everybody walking down the stairs like trying to hide I just remember doing that because I was like I don't want anybody to see me in this stage the reason why I drunk so much is we were at a party where we didn't know anybody and it was just yeah. obviously like I was super nervous super anxious yeah. so just drunk a lot to sort of cover that to give me some confidence took me the other side I just remember like just being so sick and so unwell and you taking me home putting me to bed yeah I don't drink gin in that way because it it does make me think like god you're fucking brilliant Lauren and then I go out and just <laughs> I just can't even imagine myself being like that now like putting myself no, in a position most of what I remember from that party is you being in the bathroom and me worrying about you <laughs> I probably probably what happened was we turned up I drank a shitload of gin walked down the stairs went to the loo I didn't experience any of the party at all and then I left um, you took me home and I just went to bed being sick on myself and being really unwell <laughs> what a fucking time to be alive um, yeah so I don't drink that much do you know who I feel like has really 
good self-control. Samantha Nolan Smith. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's way too grounded. She's amazing. To to be, you know, knobbing around uh, on the cobbles. (laughs) You'd never see Samantha Nolan Smith (laughs) running around in a gutter. Puking into other people's mouths. No. But who is she, Helen? So essentially, we've split this episode into two episodes. Yeah. And it's because we had such a long and glorious chat. And she's so she's so insightful. Um, so this is part one yes. of a two-part uh, Livid episode with Samantha Nolan-Smith, who is the founder and CEO of the School of Visibility. The school supports women to be more visible so that they can live bigger, bolder lives, expand their reach, be seen for the wisdom they've worked hard to acquire and embody, and positively impact the world. Combining her background as a lawyer and social justice advocate with her training in personal and spiritual development, Samantha has developed a unique approach to overcoming visibility barriers. Her methodology supports women to overcome personal, societal and ancestral blocks so they're able to embody the change they were born to create. This was a brilliant episode. It's a bit of a livid extravaganza, but we really hope you enjoy it. So here is part one, and here's Samantha. I once was recording, I don't know if I've told you this, this recording a podcast with somebody over Zoom, and we turned our cameras off because of the bandwidth, and I said something that made absolutely no sense. Uh, and so I froze, like stopped talking halfway through. And then just blamed and pretended that I had an internet connection had cut out because I was so stressed about how crap that thought was. And then I went, oh, can I just, I think something happened with my signal there. Can I just start that thought again? She was like, oh, yeah, that's fine. But um, I just made no sense. And I just thought it'd be better to just pretend the internet. I wish you could do that in real life. <laughs> just freeze. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank oh, you it's so, my so pleasure. Much. It's my pleasure. I've been listening to your show and then looking at your Instagram page and I've just so enjoyed what you're putting out in the world. It's lovely. Oh, thank you. That's really nice. It's such an important conversation, isn't it? And I'm quite thrilled that it's a conversation that's being had in Britain as opposed to, say, anywhere else in the world because I think it's such an important conversation to start there. Yeah. Why do you think particularly in Britain? Because we're the colonialists. (laughs) Well, well, yeah, that. But I wasn't thinking of that. I was thinking because in Britain there's so much um, concern about being polite and saying the right thing and not upsetting people. And certainly in Australia we're less concerned about that. (laughs) We're a bit more like we're just going to say it as it is. If you don't like it, I I don't have time to think about (laughs) What, how you, how it might be better said. <laughs> and then, you know, in somewhere like America, I just think anger's right there. <laughs> it's right there, <laughs> you know, in a lot of engagement. So I think coming out of a, a country where um, the discomfort around expressing it is probably a little bit higher than some other countries is really important. Yes, that's that's true. That is true. I've never thought about it as much. <laughs> Such a different culture of anger. My sister lives in Israel, and she talks about how oh. like the culture there, and you know, it's there's not you're not you don't say sorry. No, you don't, the, the, you're not like it's just as it is. Exactly, kind of how you explain it about I guess about Australia. The anger is very much part of that as well, and how we must have absorbed that. I only, because I've lived in the UK a couple of times, it was always notable to me in meetings 
where I used to work for the British Refugee Council. And I specifically remember this meeting where everybody was very mad, but everybody was so polite. It was <laughs> if this meeting were happening in Australia, there would be raised voices. It wouldn't be yelling. Like it wouldn't be at that point, but it would be m- much more confrontational. But everybody yeah. was extremely polite and it was all just simmering right under the surface. It was almost like people were getting more polite the angrier they were getting. It was like... <laughs> I just sat back and yeah, observed yeah. and thought, this is amazing. <laughs> That's, uh, there's even been a couple of memes, I think, that are like uh, about translation of English specifically, but British phrases mm. for people in the rest of the world. And it's literally that. It's like, uh, thank you. It's been nice to see you. It's like, yeah, the fuck off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 And like the it's absolutely I think that really resonates like the politer almost like the politer the more controlled it gets the more the more pleasant it gets the more there is like quite often a lot bubbling in the subtext <laughs> and we all get used to hearing it we all get used to kind of second guessing one another in a way mm. Mm. Um, but yeah I think that's why these conversations are important because it gets to a point where we're all relying so hard on multiple layers of second guessing and like social contracts and unspoken stuff going on mm. that it becomes at a point quite impossible to just say this is what I want to say and this is how I want to say it and, you know and I, especially for women yes huge for women huge just <sighs> saying what we want to say it doesn't have to be rude um, doesn't have to be but it doesn't have to uh, have an overlay of excessive consideration of how might this be received by this person or this person this person you can just cleanly express your perspective mm-hmm. and be okay with if other people don't receive that well I know that my intention is good, my heart is good, and I'm not responsible for everybody else's <laughs> way of interpreting what I speak. Yeah. Yeah. That's a long lesson. <laughs> <laughs> that we're still learning. And interesting that I guess that feels, if it is a British thing, how responsible we feel for other people. Why is that part of our culture? It's so interesting. This whole like stiff upper lip British thing, I guess, dates so far back, but when it definitely comes to things like anger and rage where, you know, one of the biggest jumps for us to explore it has been because there's so little out there about this conversation, especially for women. But I never put it down to that being just because of being British. There's the difference between politeness doesn't necessarily mean kindness or compassion. And that's the other side of it with the coming back to the colonisers that we are, is that... um, you know, it's interesting, too, that you can look back and go, oh, we've always been so polite, haven't we? We've been so polite. I would never say anything to upset you. I worry about it all the time. And then meanwhile, you know, we've gone across the world genociding everybody. So, I, you know, and, and everything else and all the yeah. other stuff that we're, we're kind of also obviously uh, really confronting at the moment. So it's just, it's again, it's like it does feel more like that politeness can be a block as opposed to a... Uh, Um, a bridge or an avenue for kindness. Mm. It's very irreconcilable to me. My personal experiences around British culture and everybody being perfectly lovely. And then when I look at the history of Australia, for example, and I look at some of our historical documents, and certainly there's a point at which Australians, non-Indigenous Australians take over from the British Empire influence. But in that first 50 to 100 years, it's just horrific. Like some of the directive that was coming and then some of the justification that was going back. And you, and I have always looked at that and thought, what happened to the politeness? <laughs> 
It was a lie. <laughs> it was a big lie. It was like yeah. like some people got out of the polite society of Britain and then all of a sudden we're like let free in the world and then we're like, woo, <laughs> we can just do what we like now. <laughs> Here, yeah. particularly, you know, somewhere so far away like Australia. Yeah. I mean, even that we had the goal to decide that we were going to send our prisoners, for instance, to Australia, you know, you pick a country on the other side of the world and you go, we'll send our people there, (laughs) you know, and obviously that being open as well, I'm sure to a lot of people that were moving for other reasons. But I mean, it's like, it's just, I mean, that's, that's been the attitude, hasn't it really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. One of the inspirations for starting the podcast was your women in rage videos that we first found within our world of research and it's been such a huge inspiration for us in this project so it's Mm -hmm. honestly such a pleasure to be able to talk to you and we just think you're doing the most amazing work and we wondered if we could start by asking for people that haven't been introduced to the work that you do it'd be really lovely to hear a bit about what you do and with your school of visibility well hello everybody i'm samantha nolan smith and i'm the ceo and founder of the school of visibility and the school of visibility is an is an online school it's a school for women those who identify as women and when i say women I like to be really clear straight up, I'm talking about cis and trans women. Uh, We're also very open to non-binary and gender fluid people if they consider that the work would be useful to them. And what we do is we really look at why we are living in a situation where women are less visible than particularly white cis men, let's say, and the impact of patriarchal conditioning and the internalization of that conditioning, which leads us to be in a situation where both we have systemic oppression of women's voices and of women's stories and women's wisdom. And then we also have our own internalized fears about speaking up, about putting ourselves forward, about saying the wrong thing, not being educated enough. And this combination of a system that's deliberately silenced women for thousands of years and then living through that and the legacy of that and then being told, go out there, do anything, be who you want to be. You know, you're living in the 21st century, do what you like. And then finding, actually, I don't have the same level of confidence or I feel deeply uncomfortable about promoting my work. What is going on? And so the School of Visibility really looks at all of this and we help women or support women to overcome what I call visibility blocks. And visibility blocks are the ways that we've internalized the patriarchal mindset to such a point where we just don't feel as valuable or as confident as uh, I just, it's so flashed into my head there where I think there's a meme that sometimes floats around the internet where it says, oh, for the confidence of an average white cis male. Like, yeah. <laughs> we just don't have that. And, and all groups, I call what we call, and I'm saying in inverted commas, minority groups, I call us all the diverse majority because I feel like, for one, women as a collective, we're not a minority group. And then when you think about all the different groups in society, whether you're talking about people of color, whether you're talking about Indigenous people, whether you're talking about people with disabilities, when we all come together, we're incredibly diverse 
and we're the majority. We are well and truly the majority. That doesn't mean we come with one voice, but we all have an experience on some level or another of being silenced, of being minimized, of having our perspective not centered. And so this is the work that I am very interested in doing. And really the objective of it is to really break down. I look through the lens of patriarchy, but I look through it intersectionally and really break down systems of oppression from the inside out. I do that because I have a history in social justice, I have a history in the legal profession, and I spent a long time looking at how to break down uh, systemic inequality from a more traditional way of doing it. And what I found after then having my own journey with personal development work and so forth for other reasons about my own health and mental health and so forth was, oh, there's a whole piece missing. It's the internal work as well. We have all of this mindsets and ideology and continuation of philosophical ideas from hundreds of years ago that all need to be broken down as well. And and so that's when I started to move into this work. And that's what the School of Visibility is all about. I found what you were doing through the Visibility Challenge, which was a four-day challenge. And I remember at the time I'd kind of stumbled upon it and wasn't really necessarily in the habit of, you know, clicking into these things or taking them up. And I was, but I was so struck by the thought I think it was the first time that it had occurred to me and and I think just being able to see that there was a course for that <laughs> that, that, that it was even something that I could challenge myself to do for a few days and see what might happen to try to unpick uh, like you said some of the internal stuff that's getting in in the way and I think it was just such a huge relief to me to realize that a lot of the things that I personally had internalized were not really just about me. And and that's, I think, such a good starting point for having these kind of conversations. And Mm. yeah, also why we wanted to do this podcast too, I think, because we were having conversations between ourselves, uh, but realizing that a lot of what we were talking about was not personal to either myself or Lauren um, and needing to kind of explore that space a little bit more so it's just it's it's really it's such a great thing that you're providing with that even the fact that there are a lot of women I think who haven't even asked themselves that question let alone gone in and (laughs) started to discover some of the answers you know well a, a lot of women say to me oh now suddenly my life makes sense now the reasons why I wasn't doing this or I wasn't doing that, it finally makes sense to me. And that's certainly how I felt. I mean, I I studied feminist philosophy at university, um, which is many, many years ago now. Um, But that's how I felt when I first studied feminist philosophy. I suddenly was like, oh, this is articulating so many things that I had felt about the world and I had no language for. But I remember distinctly sitting in class one day, it was a very academic um, French philosophical class, and we were talking, there was lots of conversation about labias and all sorts of the vulva and all of this, and that's great, and I love that, and I love the French for bringing all of that to the the table in feminism. But I started to get really angry, and I was like, what is this anger about? And I thought, how is this helping the woman who is being beaten right now? Now, in this moment, I had this really strong feeling of there being a woman somewhere, obviously multiple women would have been would have been happening to at that time, being beaten up by a male in their life. And I thought, this is not 
helping them. And I don't want to be disrespectful to any feminist who has contributed to the canon because I think it is it is wildly important and every contribution is extraordinarily valuable. But it was a wake-up moment for me about where did I need to bring my voice to the table. And it was about how do we bring this back to the individual woman and to her life and then give her not just the knowledge but give her actual tools to free herself to liberate herself and for me that was where the internal work became so important because when we suddenly see the map the patriarchal map within we can really start to understand oh this is why my voice isn't as influential as I would want it to be. This is why I'm so frustrated. This is why when I speak up at home, people aren't listening to me or I'm carrying the mental load or whatever it is in the household. And that then became so important to me to work that out. And and of course, that then took quite some time to work out. <laughs> how does the link between the blocks for visibility, how did that road to take you to make the videos about rage and rage around women? Because you talked about how that was such an intense reaction for you whilst you were experiencing it. So I I have done a lot of work with women on what I call good girl conditioning. And good girl conditioning is really about this way that, that certainly in the West, but I think that this is a pretty global and universal concept, the way that, that as girls, first of all, and then as women, we are conditioned to be polite, to be kind, to be thoughtful, to put others' needs before our own. This is all a part of what I call the good girl conditioning. And as I was talking to women about visibility and I was working with a lot of women who were building businesses online and they were saying, what if people get upset with me? What if I promote my work? And then they're like, stop promoting your work. We don't want to hear you and we don't want you to be salesy. And, you know, and they were feeling really uncomfortable. And and we talk about doing, say, Facebook live videos and they'd be like, I don't know, I might, um, I might accidentally say something that I don't mean to say and then somebody's going to get upset with me. So this fear of upsetting people was enormous. And as we started to dig into that together as a community, we started to dig into that more. What I was finding as we were clearing out the good girl conditioning was this underlying resentment and rage that women were not talking about that was just sitting under the surface of that because it all seems really lovely when we're walking around and we're like, yes, of course I'll do that. Yes, of course I'll do that. And we're saying yes, when we really mean no for so many different things. But what we're swallowing is the resentment around why are people asking me to do these things? Why am I not able just to say no? And why do I feel bad about just saying no? And so then as we started to unpack that, I realized, oh, all of this conditioning is stopping us. It's pushing down rage and it's stopping us from feeling it. So it's still there. It's still in our bodies. It's still in our awareness, but it's just suppressed. And of course, part of the Google conditioning is you cannot feel anger. You cannot express rage. This is not an appropriate thing for a female to embody on any level. So that's how we started to move toward that. And then I suddenly realized this is an enormous conversation we have to have. For me, a lot of the work and a lot of my own grief and rage really became apparent to me around the time of the 2016 US elections when Hillary Clinton went up against Donald Trump. And I started to feel intense 
rage at injustice and just the sheer, he was this woman who was so qualified, who was so prepared. And then he was this man who represented a whole lot of other things that we don't even need to go into, but who was clearly inappropriate for the job. And even then, even in that situation, all the patriarchal tropes about, I don't know, I just don't like her. I don't trust her. All the things about women around being untrustworthy and the ease with which people undermine women's credibility started to come to the surface. And I just started to get angrier and angrier. And then of course, then Me Too happened. And I started to watch women really start to claim anger and rage at the injustices done to them and done to others in the world. And what I saw in that process was a claiming of power, was a was that anger and rage is a path to claiming more space in the world, to saying, I'm allowed to be a full human being on this planet. And that means I'm allowed to express my rage just as I'm allowed to express every other emotion. And then that became very interesting to me, the idea of anger and rage being a path to empowerment. Yeah, it really is. And it's interesting that stuff I think around me too as well, because it does feel like that was a point where I feel like a lot of women were discovering vocabulary. It's a bit like what we said earlier, you know, you're discovering a vocabulary for something that you're very familiar with, but you're not familiar with it at the same time, because these discussions haven't been had openly, even between women. You know, we weren't having conversations between ourselves about the extent of a lot of the things that were going on um, and how widespread that is. And and again, part of that is obviously the way that we can internalize that in our own life and just kind of make it about us. But it really felt like we're learning. I feel like as women that we're learning at the same time as we're trying to teach. And I think that's why communities and spaces like the one that you curate and and lead are so, so important because we need that space together as women, aside from, apart from the conversations we're having with the men in our lives, which can also be really difficult, you know, uh, the conversations we're having with one another are also about us we're forming words for the things that we're all kind of collectively experiencing. I absolutely agree. What I love about living in this time is the sweep of social justice reform in so many areas. So we're learning language. I mean, I didn't understand language, for example, of what was sexual coercion. I had no idea what that was when I was a teenager and living and breathing it every day. But then also when I dive in myself into uh, the race space and I learn from so many incredible anti-racism activists and I learn about things like white fragility, for example, that I also had no, there was no no language for that in the past. And so when I watch this language being created by the diverse majority to teach everybody about these lived experiences that have been suppressed f- for so long, I think isn't this an extraordinary time to be on the planet? I mean, just incredible. Hard, yeah, but incredible. I think the conversation around language is so fascinating because I remember learning the word gaslighting. I remember learning that and being like, oh, it must have happened before in my life. But I remember as an, you know, a couple of years ago it happening to me. And I think I probably even phoned Helen and was like, I'm being gaslit. But there was almost like this relief in that there was a word for it that I was like, oh my goodness, this makes 
so much sense because of of what this is and this is now I'm really angry that I know what this is but also relieved that I was able to articulate what was happening to me you know by this person at this point and I think also patriarchal conditioning and even that that's within women I think that was probably something I, I learned from your visibility challenge about learning about if this is something that I've done, if this is something that I've done where I've thought, oh, I just don't like that person or that woman and I don't really know why. And then this immense feeling of like, oh, that was conditioned within me, within the patriarchy. And I'm so angry about it. It's all these like light bulb moments go off now that we're able to have this language and thinking about us as children or our parents as children and what not ever having that language until now. It just feels like I think the importance of language is so huge for us because it's almost like we're being given tools now yes, um, to help us not continue the things that we've been doing before sort of breaking those habits exactly if you can't see it you can't solve it so if you can't see and articulate what the problem is how do we ever create a solution to it so the language Mm. is critical to that that's also why i use the idea of patriarchal conditioning Certainly when, sort of in the in the latter half of the 20th century, when we were talking about patriarchy, it was very much um, them versus us. Uh, it's the patriarchy. It's all their fault. And yeah. it's not got nothing to do with us. We're the victims of that. That didn't sit so well with me in the sense that I, I didn't want to be a victim of it. I absolutely was certain that all women were. But I thought there's more there's more nuance to this than than just that perspective and when I started thinking about well this is just toxic waters we are all swimming in toxic waters and there's no way that any of us that are swimming in it are not affected by it and when you start to think of it from that perspective then it gives you an entry point to then be curious about well how have these toxic waters affected me and what can I do to change that and that's really important when you think about the intersection of an identity because nobody is just on the side of the goodies or the baddies almost everybody is a mix of these things where there's some aspect of them that sits on the side of the oppressor and that sits on the side of the oppressed so thinking about the perspective of well, maybe I am swimming through these toxic waters and I've internalized this patriarchal conditioning, I've internalized white supremacy, I've internalized ableism, I've internalized heteronormative perspective on the world. And as I start to weave my way through that, I see what I have, what I have internalized and what that has meant for what has made me angry because I've identified with some of it and I've not identified with other pieces, I feel like it's a tool that stops it just being about us versus them, which doesn't ultimately get us where we need to get to as humanity and and gets us all in the same kind of tent and then says, now each of us have been affected by this differently and how can we then detoxify the waters so we can detoxify ourselves and certainly as a mother I have a a daughter and a son 
And being a mother of a son really helps me with this as well because I'm just as committed to breaking down the patriarchy for my daughter's sake as I am my son's sake because I do not want him to become a monster because patriarchy teaches him to not think about his own privilege and to always put his own perspective first and to never understand what consent means and to, you know, I I do not want my beautiful little four-year-old to turn into a monster as he becomes an, a teenager and then an adult in the same sense that I, I'm terrified of my daughter being subjected to violence. I saw the, the horrible murder of um, Sarah Everard, Everard uh, this week and I just burst into tears when I saw that, which I imagine many, many people did because the sheer violence of that and the t- terror that then that instills in women is horrific and so sometimes when I'm thinking about rage and, and anger, my response to people who say, why would you look at this is if you're not feeling it, you're not paying attention. You're not paying attention to what's going on in the world. And how can we change the world if you're not paying attention? Yeah, absolutely. And that thing as well, because I think you said, unless we're in touch with our own rage and unless we are doing our own internal work on rage, that we can't fully experience or give compassion to another person you know I think what you're saying about how we're all impacted by this so that we can kind of all have this conversation and I think that's a really interesting link that you made because they feel like the way they're presented in our societies are so polar opposite that you're more likely to be compassionate if you're not an angry person (laughs) can you talk a bit more about how how you think that link how the one can can help the other even if they might seem really contradictory I think when you suppress anger, you have the tendency to become very judgmental and critical because judgment and criticism is like little spitting anger. It's like I can't allow myself the fullness of my anger, so I'm just going to spit it out. But when you sit with your anger and your rage, when you're really willing to meet it and allow it to be in the body and move through the body, because anger and rage is is emotion it's it's energy it's a moving thing it's not like a stuck thing it's only stuck when we exert huge amounts of effort to push it down or to keep it in place but if we release that first of all we gain so much uh, vibrancy because all of a sudden we're not exhausted by pushing down the anger and the rage but when we meet it in a way that then allows it to come through what we find is first of all what it teaches us is this is what I'm not willing to allow anymore this is where I set my boundaries in the world this is what matters to me and this is what I'm going to use my voice to speak up about but what it also does is as it moves through what we can often find underneath what it protects us from is enormous grief and sadness and deep pain and that's the link to compassion because if you think of it like almost like sediments in the in the earth once we access the rage and the anger and allow ourselves to meet that then we can see what's the wounding underneath that needs attention that needs addressing and when you meet that that is your pathway to compassion. That is your pathway because when you can have compassion for yourself and the pain that you're feeling, you can have compassion for the world. You can have compassion for all people. And when you then bring it back to understanding this is toxic waters that we're all swimming in, you can find your way to compassion for all human beings, which is a really hard step when you haven't first been 
allowing yourself to express the anger around the way the world is. To me, it's impossible to get to full compassion for humanity if you have not been able to express your upset and your distress about the the state of the world, but not to get stuck there. And this is the thing that I talk to women a lot about is the idea isn't to access anger and then spend the next 50 years feeling rageful about everything in the world. And sometimes people say to me, I'm thinking about doing your work, but I'm really worried I'm just going to be angry every day for the rest of my life. Exactly. (laughs) And that's when I speak to them about anger is about, it's almost like letting up the volcano. But once the lava has spilled over, there's a calm that comes to the land and there's a calm that comes to humanity. And there's a calm that comes to your mind. And what happens in that moment is you become very clear about the next step you need to take. You become extremely productive because you're not um, embroiled in all of this emotion that's swirling around that's unacknowledged. You've looked at it, you've addressed it, and then you're like, okay, now I know what we need to do. Now I know what or what I need to do, and I know how I'm going to express that in a way that people will hear. Oh, when you talk about the lava erupting part, because the bit before and the bit after are so clear, but the lava part, how can that be done in a safe way for you? Because I'm thinking so much about how much we're taught growing up, you know, conversations about it being gendered, how we're taught as women to frame how to be angry or how we learn what that is or to the point where like you say where we push it down but also for the moment of lava erupting which I love as an image how is that done safely well I was going to say for for both parties involved I guess yeah how is that done with care Mm, such a good question such a good question because I think we have almost no models in society for a healthy expression of anger and what we and so I'm going to come to that, but I want to say this mm. first. What we do see and what we associate with anger is violence. So there's this correlation that we've made between, well, if I feel anger, somehow there's going to be an expression of violence or an experience of violence. And I think it's really important to separate those things and to understand that anger is an emotion and violence is an action. And if you don't know how to embody emotion and allow emotion through the body then you will try to get it out of your body you will try to push it out of your body and you'll either do that through angry words or you'll do that through angry actions so hitting you know what violent actions look like Mm. so the first thing is to understand that we are all quite uncomfortable with allowing that emotion to be in our bodies it feels uncomfortable in our bodies And then as we develop an awareness, as we start to work with anger, what we realize is, oh, it's not going to kill me to feel anger. It's okay to actually feel it. We allow, we know every human being knows how to allow emotion because we allow happiness all the time, or we allow uh, laughter, or we allow love, or we allow every human being has had an experience of allowing some emotion of some description, but we've allowed the emotion that we've deemed good or uh, comfortable. Maybe we've allowed just ease or peace or whatever it might be. It is the same with anger. We can just allow anger to be in our bodies. What I mean by that is when we start to feel angry, let's say we'll keep the volcano analogy going. 
we can start to feel it like boil up and we know, oh, it's going to come out the top of the volcano any moment now. And it can feel, uh, it can feel like discomfort. It can feel hot. It can feel swirling. It can, it can feel like movement. And at that moment, my invitation is to say, can you just not take action with that? but be present with it. Can you be present with your own swirling volcanic potential eruption? What I teach my students to do is often to sit and just observe it. Observe it moving through the body. Watch what's happening with the emotion just as a form of energy moving through the body like any other form and to see if it is possible rather than trying to spew it out from discomfort or speak it out or blame somebody else and try to push it away or do the opposite that I've spoken a lot about with you, which is push it down, pretend it's not happening, pretend it's not there, rather than doing either of those things, can you just be still and be present to it and then observe what happens? And in that moment, this is what I call the transformational effect of meeting rage or meeting anger. In that moment, when you're able just to sit with it and allow it to be with no story about, because what we do is we juice up our stories. So we get angry about something, then we start, our mind gets involved and it starts to go, it's their fault and I hate them or I don't like them or they've done something that, that I disagree with, blah, 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 blah. And we start to really, the mind starts to really juice up the emotion, starts to tell lots and lots of stories. And we can feel ourselves getting more and more upset because the mind is playing its game of poking the bear. It's like, yes, you're right. They are terrible people. They don't know anything about anything. They don't understand you. They don't do, do, do. You know, everybody knows what the, everybody's mind works in a very similar manner in this regard. So rather than the mind doing that, if the mind could just become curious about what is what does emotion feel like in my body? What does energy feel like in my body? It then can become very intense. If you really are in a state of, I'm just going to allow this in the same way that I would allow joy to come through, and you sit there, there will be moments where you think, I cannot sit with this. I, I, I physically don't think I can hold this, like allow this to be here. It's just too much. It's too overwhelming. And I promise you, for anybody who's listening who's been in labor, uh, it's just like the moment just before you're about to have a baby and you're like, okay, I'm done. I just have to, I have to give up on this whole labor thing. I just forget about getting this baby out of my body. It's just never going to happen. <laughs> it's that moment. It's that same moment. So if you can be there, what then happens is it moves through. It moves through the body as it's supposed to. That's what is supposed to happen. It moves through your body and then you're left with, oh, okay, that volcano wasn't quite so destructive as I thought it was going to be. And now I have a clear voice. This is where it comes back to visibility for me because when I talk about visibility, I'm talking about being seen, but I'm even more so talking about being heard. And once the experience of being present with anger and rage has happened, and that can take, if you don't, if the mind doesn't get involved, that can take a minute, literally a minute, two minutes. It's intense, but it takes a couple of minutes and it's, it's purifying. It purifies 
the thoughts and it purifies the emotions to the extent that you can then sit there and say, okay, now I know what I want to say. Now I know what I want to articulate. So in a domestic situation, let's take that. Um, if I'm feeling with uh, my, my children, they're really starting to push my buttons and I'm like, I'm really getting angry here. I could just yell at them, of course, that would be an option. I could suppress and just go, everything's okay. They're driving me crazy, but everything's okay. Uh, also, that's eventually going to come out anyway. But what I do instead is I say, children, just give me a moment. And I just sometimes have to close the door and be in my own space. And I just let the anger, let the anger through my body. I try as I work as hard as I can to be as fully present as I can possibly be with it. And once it's moved through, then I'm able to open the door and I'm able to speak very cleanly and clearly with them about this is what we need to do. These are my expectations. This is how uh, we need to move forward or this is how I require you to speak to me if you want something from me or whatever it is. And that is so much better for the relationship. It's so much better for me because I haven't um, either pushed it into my body and created disharmony in my body, but I also haven't spewed it out to my children and then started another whole dialogue about that was, I was a terrible mother. How could I do that? I, I, you know, I wish I didn't speak to my children that way. Da, 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 da. And it just allows you then to move on, to just get on with your day. It's such an incredible account. Like I haven't, <laughs> I, I can't say I've ever been able to sit with my anger without my story kicking in hardcore I have tried to do that kind of as a separate thing tried to go okay because I'm aware of you know triggering I know even I'm sure we all know really there are things where your reaction is 150% more than it probably should be given what's been said or whatever but it's such a powerful account what you're talking about with really really truly allowing it to be an energy and it just makes me think, I think these things become so interconnected, right? Because we might not want to say something because we haven't been brought up with the confidence of a cis straight white man. Uh, we might have all of these kind of blocks and these and these teachings around how much space we can take up or whether we can say something or whether we're even allowed to have a boundary, let alone know what that boundary might be. And, you know, I was thinking about the thing you were saying where we can't even say no without saying Oh, I'd, oh, maybe, you know, let's think like all of these things that we'll do rather than say no. And, you know, you think about that in terms of then all the stuff to do with um, consent becoming so difficult for people. Because, again, I suppose it's like we spoke about at the beginning. We're going on all of these kind of unspoken understandings, but everybody's not on the same page. So everybody doesn't understand what's being unspoken. You know, everybody takes their, the male perspective on what that means. To allow the experience of anger to be a thing of its own and then to deal with the rest of the stuff later. It's just incredible that that's such groundbreaking new information uh, at this point. <laughs> you know, and it, it, it is incredible. Like, it feels very exciting to hear you describe yeah. <laughs> what this could be if we allowed it to just be an energy. Yeah, and and it requires us that thing of, of recognising that we've built all this story around anger and rage. And I think that's why your work is so vitally important to deconstruct that and to show people it's approachable. It's okay. We can talk about this. It's not, it's not this big scary monster that's absolutely 
always hovering, but for some reason, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to go near it. We want to pretend like this isn't just a regular part of being a human being. And the minute we give ourselves permission to just recognize, yes, anger is one of the emotions that human beings experience. That's okay. That's perfectly okay. Now, how do we experience that in a way that is actually useful and actually might even benefit us as a society, that's such an interesting question to ask. And it shocks me that we've never asked it before. Why? <laughs> Why yeah, we never- it's a signal to us. We've talked about this before, about that it's often there because a boundary has been crossed and it allows us to know this is something that we're not happy with or this is something we're not comfortable with. It's an alarm that goes off. It's so interesting to compare it to being happy or any other emotion because I was just imagining like how my life would be so different had I just thought of anger in the same way as when I feel happy and joyful about something and I'm like oh I feel quite quite happy about this thing you know you get some news and you're like oh I feel quite happy I might tell somebody about it and I'm not gonna be like like not gonna just explode like I would today I was the things that we talked about about exploder or imploder and this is the comparison that Helen and I first talked about it that I am definitely somebody that blows my lid and not and I think that's why I was so fascinated by the lava thing because I was like it's not necessarily what I imagine it is where you allow the lava you're allowed to just explode in that way that's still not the right way to do it but if I thought about anger in the same way of this is a signal, I'm going to sit with this and see how this feels, you know, shut the door, experience it, do the thing I need to do and then go out in the same way that I would feel any other emotions. God, we wouldn't have this podcast, Helen, probably. <laughs> I think we'd just be... Another one about dogs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> dogs are very That's popular. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but this is, this is the focus for now. Until all rages. Yeah. Uh, it's just, I think it's, it's such a fascinating thing that we talked about for so long about anger being an energy. And I have never heard it explained in that way so clearly to me and just yeah. that we don't know you know what you describe about after a certain point it's gonna feel like this and then it's gonna go <laughs> and then it's gonna be okay the fact that that has to be explained and described honestly i think and it's and it's so amazing that you've done that work that you can then say this is how it goes this is how it yeah. feels and then and then afterwards it goes you know because yeah. i think that's the thing is we get so pulled into Uh, Even when you're trying to sit with rage, I think for me, it's like, you know, obviously your mind will kind of skip ahead into all of the, well, how am I going to say this? And how am I going to articulate it? And I need to make my point. I can't be silent because then I'll be more angry. Well, but I can't say this. So it's kind Mm. of like initially hijacked by this fear that whatever I'm feeling won't be articulatable or won't be heard. You know, I think that that's such a part of it as well, because looking at women's anger specifically and like for giving women the permission to to feel their anger and to sit with it is that the other side is obviously the experiences that you get by how it's received in our society as well even as we're doing this work so even as all these women are kind of coming forward and going well guess what I am going to say this and back off of course we know there's a backlash that comes with that of course we know Mm -hmm. that um that will not be received 
the patriarchy is not going to go, oh, well done, love. You know, they're, they're going to go, there's going to be a pushback, you know. So I wonder what you think mm. about. There's not just going to be a pushback. There's going to be a pushback by men who have no capacity to hold anger healthily in their bodies. So yeah. so it's not just that the patriarchy will go, whoa, 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 ladies, this is not the way you behave. We've told you how to behave. We've given you the good girl conditioning. What are you doing? But also it's going to trigger in a lot of men a lot of anger and rage about how dare you speak up to me because of this unexamined privilege. And when you have unexamined privilege and then all of a sudden those who are hierarchically on the lower end of the hierarchy to you start to speak up, then all the rage starts to come up. So I'm not pretending like this is going to be easy at all. But what is the alternative is the first thing that I that I ask. But the second thing is that we teach people how to treat us. And when what has what we have done over centuries is because we've been not had these tools and we have not um, had the economic privilege, we've not had the political circumstances that we're in today, we're in a very different position as women than say we were 100 years ago or 200 years ago, where we now are in a position where we can say, this is how you treat us now. This is what womanhood looks like now. This is how we expect that you will engage with us. And until we have the confidence to say that, men aren't going to just turn around and go, uh, we've really had a lot of thought about you women and we've really realised that it's all of our, it's all us and so on and so forth. It's just not going to go that way. It's, yeah. gonna, it's going to come from us. So we're going to continue this conversation, aren't we? It's yes. not the end. No. Thank you for listening to part one. You can find out more about Samantha and the work that she does at her website, uh, schoolofvisibility.com. And we're also going to link all of her socials in the description as well. Also, she's running a short course called Smash the Patriarchal Mindset, and we'll link to that too. But join us in the next episode where we'll pick up from where we left off in the last one. To be continued. continued. Bye. Bye. You can tweet the show using the hashtag LividPodcast or follow us on Instagram at LividPodcast and share what makes you furious. Livid is brought to you by Playwell with music by Ashani Perrin Panayagam. Thank you so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode.